Well, we come now to hear from God's Word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as always, it is a privilege to be able to proclaim the Word of God to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Matthew chapter 4? Last week, we looked in detail at the baptism of Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist shows up at the beginning of Matthew chapter 3 to prepare the way for the Lord, for Jesus to come and begin His ministry. And he did that by proclaiming that the King is here. He has come, and so it's time to repent of your sins and follow after Him. Then, in what was a surprise to John, Jesus also came to him and asked to be baptized. And he said it was fitting for him to be baptized because it would fulfill all righteousness. This was Jesus identifying himself with sinful humanity. But we saw at the very end of that passage, the amazing Trinitarian sequence at the end of Jesus' baptism. Matthew says in verses 16 and 17, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this leads us right into our passage today, Matthew 4, 1-11, because the first thing the Holy Spirit does when he anoints Jesus for his ministry is he drives him in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And the word that Jesus hears from his father in verse 17 is exactly what Satan calls into question in his temptations. And so today we're going to see the temptation of Jesus, but amazingly and thankfully, we are also going to see the faith and obedience of Jesus in the midst of those temptations. Before we see that in God's word, though, would you pray with me and ask for his help? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and trust in you. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, 
And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. I don't have an outline listed in your bulletin, but if you'd like to follow along, where we're going today is we're first going to look in verses 1 and 2 at the circumstances surrounding Jesus' temptation. And then to understand his temptation better, we need to see what temptation is, and then we need to see the very first temptation in the garden with Adam and Eve, because that's very much in the background of what Matthew is telling us here. Then at that point, we're going to look at Jesus' temptation specifically in verses 3 through 11, and then we're going to end by asking what it is we are to see in this story. First, though, let's look at the circumstances of Jesus' temptation. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit has anointed him for ministry, and those magnificent words of God the Father were spoken to him. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But look at what happens immediately after this mountaintop experience for Jesus. Read verses 1 and 3, 1, 2, 3 with me. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came. The first action upon upon the Holy Spirit anointing Jesus for ministry is to lead him, not to the center of Jerusalem, to proclaim that the king is here and to rally the troops, but further into the wilderness, alone, away from everyone else. And Matthew tells us the Spirit's explicit purpose. It isn't a surprise to the Holy Spirit that the devil is there. The Spirit led him, it says, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter in John chapter 14. Romans 5 says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 15 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Those are wonderful truths about the Holy Spirit, but we can very easily misunderstand them. We can confuse the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us and think that means something about our circumstances around us. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead us to peaceful and comforting places. He gives us internal peace and comfort. But he often does that in the midst of trying and difficult external circumstances. In fact, Scripture seems to especially connect the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing comfort and joy and hope to us with the presence of trials and suffering in our lives. Here we see him driving Jesus to a place of temptation of trial, and of testing. And in verse 2, we see two more important things about Jesus' circumstances. First, he's been fasting, that's not eating, for 40 days and 40 nights. In the Bible, fasting is almost always connected with one of two things, either sorrow or prayer. Jesus is almost certainly doing the second of those here. It seems that Jesus is treating this as a time of preparation for his ministry by seeking his Father in prayer and in fasting. But then Matthew states 
something that should be rather obvious to us at the end of Jesus not eating for 40 days. Verse 2 tells us he was hungry. This might seem like a throwaway line, but this is another reminder to us of Jesus' true identity. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who is self-sufficient and needs absolutely nothing outside of himself. But he has also taken human nature upon himself. Jesus' human body wasn't a facade or a trick for us. When he didn't eat, he got hungry. When he worked hard, he got tired. When he didn't drink, he got thirsty. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus shared in our weakness. He was hungry. So that's the background of Jesus' temptation. He's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is fasting in preparation for his ministry. And because he hasn't eaten for 40 days, he's hungry. And verse 3 tells us that the tempter came to him. This is the devil. Satan is who Jesus calls him in verse 10. The adversary of God, the serpent in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve and drew mankind into his own rebellion. The Holy Spirit intentionally brings Jesus to him to do battle with Satan. So how does Satan try to do battle with Jesus? The answer is the very same way that he does battle with us. He tempts Jesus to sin against God. He lies and deceives to try to draw him away from the Father. And he does this three times. So we're going to look at those three temptations, and then we're going to do a little background work to make sure we understand what exactly is happening to Jesus here. First, let's look at these temptations. The first one is in verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Second temptation is in verses 5 and 6. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then the third temptation is in verses 8 and 9. It says again, The devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down, and worship me. Now you may read those and think, how would those have been tempting? Or maybe even with the first two, how would those be sinning if Jesus had done them? One of the keys for us in understanding these temptations is going to be knowing how temptation works in general. There are three elements of temptation that are going to be helpful for us as we look at this. The first one is that temptation always offers something that is inherently good, but tells us to take it at the wrong time or in the wrong way. Food is good. Justice in response to evil is good. Sex is good. Assurance of someone's love for you is good. Humor, rest, work, 
beauty, knowledge, all of these are good because they were all created by God for us. But temptation tells us to take them in a circumstance where God has commanded us not to. Gluttony is eating more food than you should. Laziness is taking more rest than you should. Adultery is sex with a person who is not your spouse. Fornication is sex when you aren't married to that person yet. Revenge is doling out justice when it isn't yours to give. Coveting is longing for something good that God has given to someone else instead of you. Temptation always takes something inherently good and tells us to take it in the wrong circumstances. The second element to keep in mind is temptation's relationship to God's word. Sin is refusing to take God at his word. It's refusing to trust him. Sin says, I know what God's word says about this, but I don't think he's right. Or, I need to know more than God has told me. I know God's word says that it's wrong to lie, but I don't think God would want that person to think badly of me. I know God's word says that it's more blessed to give than to receive, but it really doesn't feel like that could be true. I know God promises he will take care of me and my family, and I don't need to worry, but I wish he gave me some sort of assurance that nothing bad is going to happen to us. Temptation pretends that God's word isn't enough. I can't trust that God knows enough or I need God to tell me more than he has told me. That's the second element of temptation. And then the third element of temptation is that it always offers some escape from suffering. We talked about this a lot when we were in 1 Peter at the beginning of this year. Obedience always involves some sort of enduring of suffering. Cheating on a test promises to alleviate the suffering that a bad grade would bring. Slandering someone who is mean to you promises to alleviate hurt and put it on them. Laughing at the crude joke promises to alleviate the awkwardness of everyone knowing you disagree. Sin always promises the alleviation of some suffering. And obedience always means enduring that suffering. And these three elements of temptation, they're not the only ones, but these three elements are all present at the very first temptation that we see in the Garden of Eden. Matthew certainly has Adam's sin in the garden in the background of this temptation of Jesus. It was the first battle between Satan and mankind. In Genesis 3, we read what happens. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the, eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, 
and he ate. All three of those elements of temptation are present here. Was the fruit inherently bad? No. God has already made that clear in Genesis 2. He says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God had clearly established the good of the food, the fruit that came from the trees. But his command was not to eat of just one of those trees. And it's the command from God, God's word, that Satan attacks first. He begins by calling into question the reliability of God's word. Did God really say? And then he ends by outright calling God a liar. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the suffering that Adam and Eve wanted to alleviate. They lack knowledge. They are creatures, and so they don't know everything God knows. The temptation was to be like God, to avoid the difficulty of limited knowledge, to know the secret things of God. And so, they took something good at the wrong time. They distrusted God's word and refused to endure the limited knowledge that God had lovingly given them. And they plunged humanity into sin. But now we turn to Jesus, whom Paul calls the last Adam. How did Jesus respond to his temptation? The first temptation to make bread out of stones wasn't inherently wrong. Jesus is hungry. Food is a good thing that God created and gave to us to satisfy our hunger. Later on, Jesus will miraculously create food for people who are hungry. But the temptation for Jesus is to use his miraculous gifts for his own good. It's to alleviate his suffering, not the suffering of others. Satan tempts Jesus to take his provision into his own hands and to use everything God has given him for his own good. So what does Jesus say? How does he fight this temptation? Look at verse 4 with me. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus didn't say that bread is bad. He didn't even say that bread is unnecessary. Jesus was fully human. He had to eat food to survive. His quote comes from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Moses says it to Israel to remind them of how God provided for them in the wilderness. He says this in the first half of that verse. God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus uses the word of God, particularly the promises of God in the past, to fight the lies and temptation 
of Satan. The lie that Satan tells Jesus in this first temptation is that God the Father will not take care of him. And so he needs to take care of himself. Jesus declares and trusts in the word of God. And notice, it means that Jesus will continue with the pains of hunger. He doesn't choose the easy way out. He continues to suffer those pains of hunger and entrust himself to the provision of his Father. Jesus' life will be a life of dependence on the Father to provide for him. The second temptation in verses 5 to 6 has Satan tempting Jesus to test the Father. He takes him to a high place and tells him to jump. And then Satan actually quotes scripture to Jesus. Both these quotes are from Matthew or from Psalm 91. He says he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is going on in this temptation? The important word to notice is that very first word. It's the first word that came out of Satan's mouth in the first temptation too. If. If you are the Son of God. Satan does to hear exactly what he did to Eve in the garden. Did God actually say? He calls into question the reliability of God's word. Jesus literally just came from his baptism, where he heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Satan is telling Jesus to seek confirmation from God outside of his word. He even uses the scriptures to show this. If you aren't sure whether you're God's Son, you can do this and be sure of it. Why would Jesus not be sure if he's God's Son? He wouldn't be sure if he didn't trust the word that he had just heard from the Father. The second temptation is to demand more of God than he has given to Jesus. It's saying to God, what you have given me in your word is not enough. I need more. It's refusing to walk by faith and demanding to walk by sight. Again, Jesus uses the word of God as a weapon the sword of the Spirit, to combat the lies and deceit of Satan. By faith, he trusts the word that the Father has said to him. In the third temptation, Satan gets more aggressive, both in the temptation and in what he demands from Jesus. Verse 8 says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Was the offer that Satan made to Jesus wrong? Would it have been wrong for Jesus to have all the kingdoms of the world? No. In fact, this is the very promise of Psalm 2 that we heard last week. The Lord says to his anointed, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, 
and the ends of the earth your possession. And we see at the end of the gospel that this is exactly what the Father gives to Jesus. In Matthew 28, just after the resurrection, Jesus goes up on a mountain, very much like this one, and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what was sinful about this temptation? In one way, it's what Satan requires of Jesus to get it. Worshiping him. Satan combats, or Jesus combats Satan again with Scripture that the Lord has commanded that he alone be worshipped. But another aspect of the temptation here is the timing. When does Satan offer this authority to Jesus? Now. At the beginning of his ministry. Before the scorn and plotting against him before the betrayal of his disciples, before the suffering of the cross, and before the victory of the resurrection. Satan is offering Jesus glory without a cross. You don't have to go through all of that, he says. You can skip past all the suffering and have that authority now. Jesus banishes Satan and obeys the word of his Father. He chooses to endure the suffering set before him. He will not skip the path that the Father has set out for him. Instead, he walks that path by faith. So what are we to see in this story? Why has Matthew included this in his gospel? One application of this is certainly that Jesus is an example for us. We talked a few weeks ago about repentance being all of the Christian life. As we see Jesus being led by the Spirit and fighting temptation with the Word of God, we should see the hope of sanctification in the Christian life. With God's Spirit and His Word, you can fight the temptation of the devil. John tells us in 1 John 4.4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit is not an equal counterpart to the devil. He is the infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God living in you. Jesus' temptation gives us a picture of the Spirit-empowered life we are able to live, resisting sin and trusting in God. But the story of Jesus' temptation says much more about what Jesus accomplished for us than about the example he has set for us. The angel told Joseph in Matthew 1.21 that the child would be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Last week we talked about Jesus' baptism, that it showed that he was taking the sins of his people upon himself. Though he himself will not sin, he will take our sins on him and pay the penalty for our sins. Brothers and sisters, every temptation that you have given into, every time you have distrusted the Word of God, every sin you have committed was put on Jesus and paid for by him. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, He has taken your sin upon Himself. 
But that is not the only thing that we need. We don't just need our slate wiped clean. What God requires of humanity is not just innocence. He requires righteousness, obedience, holiness. And so here, in his temptation, we see the righteousness of Jesus. I said that Paul calls Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. He makes a similar comparison in Romans 5. He says that where Adam failed for us, Jesus succeeded for us. In Romans 5, 19, he says, For as by by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Adam gave in to temptation, and so his guilt was given to us all. But Jesus trusted in the Father and obeyed in the midst of temptation, and so his righteousness is given to all who trust in him. The gospel does not teach that Jesus forgives your sins and then expects you to finish the work by living a better life. The gospel teaches that Jesus forgives your sins and also accounts his righteousness to you. That is not just true in this passage. As you read through the rest of this gospel, Jesus' righteousness, all of his obedience has been made yours. His compassion to the weak and sinful becomes your compassion. His patience toward the flickering faith of his disciples becomes your patience. His love, his righteous speech, his trust in his Father, all of his obedience becomes yours. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a life of repentance. And you are empowered more and more to leave your sin and to obey Christ. That is a glorious truth. But the peace and comfort of the Christian life are not primarily dependent upon your obedience. That is a shaky ground to stand on. Your peace and comfort and security are dependent upon Christ's obedience. His life is your solid rock. Your righteousness is not your hope. The righteousness of Jesus is your hope and your comfort. As you look back on your life, you are not called to rest in your successes and your victories. You are called instead to look at the life of Jesus and to rest in his successes and in his victories. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you all pray with me? Merciful Father, we come to you and we thank you for the righteousness of Jesus. We thank you that our eternity, our eternal life in you is not dependent upon our own righteousness and our own obedience, but upon Jesus. We pray that you would discipline us to look to him, to see in him our hope and our joy and our security. 
Would you do that in us now and forevermore? Amen.